0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, it is 6 o'clock, so we're going to get started. Happy to have our kids joining us tonight for a little while. Lizzie, how long do you want me to go with the kids here? Like, When do you all need to leave? 10 to 15 minutes, all right, because the kids turned in a lot of good questions, and so between the kids' questions and questions I receive from everyone else, we have about six, 16 really good questions, so I'm going to try to get through the kids' questions first so they can go, and I hope I can answer them all uh, adequately, and these are questions, uh, good questions from our kids that we've had even from adults, so uh, we'll, we'll get to some of this stuff. Number one, uh, from the kids, will our pets be in heaven? Will our pets be in heaven? Now, you'd be surprised that we had the same question from some of our adults in our heaven study series uh, we just got through with a, f- a few weeks ago. And uh, the answer to, will our pets be in heaven, has to be, we don't know. Okay, the, the Bible is clear that in what we call the future heaven. Okay, y'all are way over there. Um, come on step over here. The, the Bible talks about the heaven we go to when we die, if you believe in Jesus. That is what we call the present heaven, okay? That is where our souls go to be with Jesus, and there's peace and happiness, and we're with Jesus, and it's wonderful. But there's something more coming, the Bible says later, when Jesus returns, our bodies are resurrected, and our souls and bodies are reunited in what's called the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation, And the Bible's pretty clear that in the new creation, there will be animals. All throughout the prophecies in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we see that the new earth will be very much like this one, except way, 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 way better, and without sin, and without the devil. And the Bible says there will be animals there. So, if the question is, will our pets, so let's say somebody, I hope nobody has a pet named Fluffy. Let's say you have a pet named Jessica did. Let's say you have a pet, and and he's dead. Let's say you have a pet named Fluffy, and uh, Fluffy dies, okay? Hamster, dog, cat, whatever. Uh, We do not believe that that animal has a soul that goes to be with Jesus, okay? But we don't know that in the resurrection... Jesus won't raise Fluffy from the dead along with everybody else, okay? We don't know that. We know there will be cats and dogs and horses and snakes and everything else in the new heaven and the new earth. But we don't know if it will be Fluffy, okay? Does that make sense? There will be cats. There will be dogs, I think. Don't know if it will be your pet. But there will be animals there. It might be your pet. God might just do that. Okay? We don't know. Uh, number two, I love this question. Why are there scorpions? Yeah. Well, God created everything in, in, in Genesis chapter, chapters 1 and 2. We see the account of creation. And God creates everything, including every living thing, every animal, from the birds in the air to the fish of the sea to the Bible says, everything that creeps and crawls on the ground. Now, this is before Adam and Eve sinned, when he created everything, even bugs and things like scorpions, spiders, and whatever. But before the fall... Before the fall, before man, Adam and Eve sinned, there's no pain, there's no sickness, there's no death. And so whatever a scorpion was before the fall, it did not need to defend itself by stinging. Okay? So we believe that that is something that God caused after the fall, that scorpions developed maybe this defense mechanism of stinging to cause pain to keep things away from eating it. All right. So God created scorpions, he created them good. There was no pain, no suffering, no anything before sin. But when Adam and Eve sinned, things turned against each other, and creation got affected by the fall as well. So I don't know if any of you in school have heard someone talk about evolution. But we do not believe as Christians from the Bible. We do not believe that things can evolve from one species to the next. So the the big thing about evolution is that humans came from the same species as monkeys or apes, okay? Christianity rejects that. We say, no, God created humans, humans, okay? The same way he created bugs, bugs, and cows, cows, and so on. But that isn't to say that within that species, like humans or scorpions or bees or whatever, there aren't small little changes that happen within that family. Does that make sense? So scorpions after the fall could very well have developed this defense mechanism of stinging to cause pain, to protect itself, or to catch prey for itself so it can eat. Right? So I don't know why God made scorpions, just because he wanted to. I guess he thought they looked cool, so he made them and said, it is good. Um, hope that answers your question. Number three. Where did God come from? I mean, adults have that question. Where did God come from? Well, here's a fun answer for you God came from nowhere. Because God never had a starting point. Okay, God was never born, he never began to be, he just always has been, and he always will be. Okay, so like you have a birthday. When you were born into the world and you know that's how, that's my birthday, this is how old I am. That's when I started to exist in the world, even though, you know, you were conceived before that and you were all that good stuff. God did not go through any of that. And so God never came from anywhere. The Bible says that God's name is I Am. And that's interesting because it kind of insinuates there's no I was or I will be. God just always, eternally is, I am. Okay, everything else came from God. So everything else that there is came from somewhere. They came from God. We came from God. The earth, the universe, the galaxies came from God. But God has always just simply been God eternally. He didn't come from anywhere. No birthday, no beginning point, and he will last forever and ever. Number four from the kids, where will the final battle B. And I guess they mean like the end of the world, final battle kind of thing. Uh, and there are different ways that people think about this question. Many Christians believe that the final battle, like between the forces of evil and the forces of Jesus, people will believe that that will occur in a literal valley over in Israel, okay, so across the world where Jerusalem is, where Israel is, There's a valley called Megiddo, and they believe that the final battle will occur there, and that war or that battle between Satan and Jesus will be called Armageddon, okay, in that valley of Megiddo. And Jesus will win, wipe out Satan and all the forces of evil, and we'll all live forever and ever with Christ, if you know him. There are other Christians who believe that that's symbolic, and that we are currently in that final struggle between Satan and Jesus, And Jesus has already won the war on the cross and his resurrection. And when he returns, it will be the period at the end of it. Okay. When he comes back, he'll wipe away Satan and all evil and sin. And that will be the end of it. So some people believe there will be a literal end time like war over there or somewhere. And some people believe that that's just symbolic. And we're kind of in that war right now. And that's that's why the church is here to wage war against Satan. Okay. So there's different views on that. Um, Number five, will we sleep in heaven? We talked about this in our heaven study too. um, That there's nothing good about your life right now that won't be good or even better in heaven. Okay, so like I said earlier, when Jesus comes back and we have the resurrection of our bodies and there's the new earth and the new heaven, I said, that earth will be a lot like this one, except way better and without sin. So the Bible doesn't say there will be sleeping, but it doesn't say there won't be sleeping. We will not have to sleep because we're tired in heaven. We won't have to sleep to recharge our bodies because our bodies won't need recharging. We won't be tired. But who's to say that we cannot take naps and sleep in the new heaven and the new earth? Because, I mean, I enjoy a good nap and a good long nap, and uh, who's to say in the new heavens, the new earth, God will not allow us to take naps and do that, um, but it won't be because you're tired or sleepy or you need to be recharged, it'll just be for the sheer pleasure and enjoyment of taking a nap or going to sleep, so maybe, maybe there will be sleep in heaven. Number six, another question about heaven, are there roller coasters in heaven, and if so, this is a decent question, if so, will we need seat belts? Yeah, so, again, the Bible does not say there will be roller coasters in heaven, because uh, the biblical authors would have not had any idea what a roller coaster is. Uh, but, but, again, if the new heavens, the new earth is a lot like this one, and we talked in our heaven series about God uh, perhaps resurrecting or recreating works of art and works of literature and works of music and things like that in the new heavens and the new earth, who's to say that there won't be roller coasters and things for us to enjoy? Um... I don't think you will have the need for a seatbelt, because in the new heaven and the new earth, you will have a glorified body. Now, I know that sounds strange, but you know, when Jesus rose from the dead, he was a real physical person. It wasn't like he became an angel or something. He, he rose from the dead as a human, but the Bible says that he appeared in places out of nowhere that he disappeared from places, that he appeared in rooms, that he was able to do all sorts of things in his glorified, resurrected body that normal humans don't do. And even before that, he could walk on water and all kinds of things. So if our glorified body is like that, and there's no death, and there's no suffering, and there's no sickness or pain, uh, there will be no danger in the roller coaster <laughs> or whatever else it is that you decide to do in the new heavens and the new earth so I don't know if there'll be roller coasters but if there are I don't think you'll need seat belts unless you just want there to be seatbelts, and maybe God will say okay wear a seatbelt." I don't know number seven are there prophecies from the old testament that still need to be fulfilled and uh, answer to that is a big yes because um, like we're, we're talking about right now The prophets talk about a new heaven and a new earth, and right now, we are not yet to that point. Now, a lot of what the prophets talked about in the Old Testament has been fulfilled, namely when Jesus came. So they talked about the Messiah, the king that was going to come, born in the manger, born in Bethlehem, die on the cross, rise again. They prophesied all that hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus came, and Jesus came and fulfilled all that, okay? But there's a lot of stuff that we're still waiting on. We're waiting on his second coming. We're waiting on the new heaven, the new earth. We're waiting on him to come again. So there's a lot of stuff that will yet be fulfilled, but it will all be fulfilled by and through Jesus. Okay? Um, Number eight, will we be able to see God in heaven? Well, we know that we will be able to see Jesus. And we will see Jesus face to face. And he is God in human flesh. So we'll see him with our own eyes. But in some way, we will be able to see the glory of God like nobody ever has before. Okay, Because you understand that like, because we're sinful, if we were to see God right now, like the fullness of God, if you and I were to see him in our sinful state right now, we would die (laughs) because his glory would just overwhelm us like a big, bright, burning light. But in heaven, we won't have sin. There will be no Satan. And we'll be completely glorified and purified. So we'll be able to see the fullness of God's glory without dying because we're in Christ. Okay. Uh, number nine, how did God communicate to the writers of the Bible exactly what to write? Well, there's a few ways God did this. Um, in some cases, God said, hey, Isaiah, write this down. And like word for word told Isaiah what to write. Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord Isaiah and other prophets wrote exactly what God said, okay? Like someone were to say to you, hey, write this down. Da-da-da-da-da, you write da-da-da-da. That was some ways. In other ways, people were just writing history, or they were just writing poetry or wisdom or something. But the Bible says that the Holy Spirit was carrying them along. So imagine you sat down to write, and, and this doesn't happen anymore, but imagine you sat down to write, and you're writing with your personality and the words that you know, and the stuff that you've learned at this point in school, in life, but the Holy Spirit is making sure that what you write is exactly what he wants you to write. He's not necessarily whispering in your ear, write this, then this, then this. You're writing with your personality and your words, but the Holy Spirit is helping you and carrying you along in what you write. The Bible says that's how the scriptures were written. If it wasn't God saying, Isaiah, write down this word for word. I say this, write it down. Then as they wrote history or poetry or songs or whatever it is, the Bible says the Holy Spirit was there breathing through them and leading them along. So even though Moses writes Moses' words and David writes David's words and Isaiah or whoever else, it's also the word of God as the Holy Spirit is breathing through them. That's a process we call inspiration, that the Holy Spirit was breathing through them as they wrote. And number 10, your last question, was what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? And I'm going to say this is like what is the purpose, the goal of life. Now, I don't know if any of you are in Pastor Matt's group and you're learning your, uh, your catechism, your question and answer stuff, uh, one of those old catechisms answers this question. It might not be the one you're learning, but the very first question in one of them, uh, one of those old catechisms, those question answers, one of the questions is, what is the chief end of man? And that's just a fancy way of saying, what are we here for? What's the purpose of humanity in life? And the answer in that old catechism is this, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God made us as humans... In his image, he didn't make any other animal or any other creature like that. He made only humans in his image. And he made us specially to know him, to have a relationship with him, to worship him, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever. So if you in your classes and your Bible studies have been talking about Jesus and what he did for us by dying on the cross to forgive our sins and rise again, that's why Jesus came. He came to bring us to God so that we could know why we're here. We could have purpose and meaning and know why God made us through Christ. We could have peace and forgiveness and eternal life. So we're here to enjoy God and to bring him glory. And the way you can bring glory to God is by following Jesus and obeying what Jesus told us to do and loving God in that way. All right? Those are really good questions. Did I answer everybody's questions okay? over there all right if you ever have any questions you can ask Ronnie and Lizzie your teachers Natasha whoever else is leading you and if they don't know the answers they can get it to me and if we don't know the answers we can we can find answers somewhere so that's what we're here for always ask questions especially about God about the Bible about what it means to be a Christian all right good job now let's have a hand for the kids and they great questions good job All right, adults, your questions are terrible. <laughs> no, there there are good questions here, and uh, we'll get to them. We'll give them just a minute to sneak on out of here. Uh, one question came, and that was uh, one we talked about recently a little bit. Uh, who was the young man in Mark... Um, I said chapter 4, I think it's chapter 14, verses 51 through 52. And if you remember, we talked about Jesus in the garden and his arrest and his Jewish trial. Uh, Mark, and only in Mark's gospel do we have the account of, and it's really just those three sort of verses there, of this man who shows up in nothing but a a linen cloth, and uh, they take it from him, and he runs away naked off into the woods. It's the Mark. Only in Mark's gospel do we have that account. Now we have the account of the disciples fleeing and uh, Peter trying to cut off Malchus' ear and all that stuff, but then Mark includes just this little uh, three or four verse snippet about this young man who shows up and, uh, is, and is unclothed and runs away naked. And this is one of those things that a lot of um, preachers and teachers and, and theologians sometimes have made a big deal of and Some people believe that the young man in that story is John Mark, the the writer of the gospel of Mark. And just like they believe that the rich young ruler in Mark's gospel is Mark himself. And that he goes away sad because Jesus says, you know, give away what you have. Uh, and he doesn't want to, but then later he repents and comes back and believes in Christ, and he's there in the garden, and he runs away naked, and you know the stories in Acts where he shows up with Paul, he abandons Paul, but then he's back with Paul at the end of one of Paul's letters. It may very well be John Mark, and, and, you know, the gospel writers do have a way of writing themselves into the story, uh, especially John, in a way, without naming themselves, like, this was me, you know, but we know that's John, the beloved disciple, or whoever. So some people believe that that young man was, was Mark, John Mark. Um, there are some views that it's Joseph of Arimathea, and I, don't, I really don't get this connection, but because of the presence of the linen cloth, that that linen cloth is, is what he intends to bury Jesus with, and then he shows up and buries Jesus, and it's a little bit of a stretch for me. Um, it is interesting that Mark includes that little episode, and no other gospel writers do. So there might be something to the John Mark thing and his identity being Mark the gospel writer. There might be something to that. Uh, but we've got to be careful with stuff like that um, because we can easily, easily get into speculation. And speculation is fun, you know, if we're just sitting around with our friends or, you know, Pastor Matt and Zane and I are sitting around in the office just talking about what something could be in Scripture. But that's different than me getting into the pulpit or coming into a setting like this and saying, this is what this is, and this is why that's so interesting and important. Um, We can talk and have opinions and speculate and have all kinds of fun theories and ideas, uh, but we have to be able to draw the line between things that the Bible says that are clear and that are revealed clearly and things that aren't. And so we do have this weird episode with the young man running away naked, but Mark doesn't give us any more details and it's good for us to see that, maybe have some fun thinking about it and thinking through it, but not try to read something into there that's not there, all right? Um, another good question, can you separate all the Marys, all the, all the Marys? Anybody ever read the Gospels or just the New Testament and thought, oh, Mary again, Mary and Mary and Mary? You know, whenever I see the commercials for the uh, the law office, they're everywhere, but John Morgan, 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 uh, you you know what I'm talking about, John Morgan of Morgan and Morgan, the law office, that just cracks me up, because you just like Morgan and Morgan of Morgan of Morgan, of Morgan, I think about that with Mary, too, because you read the New Testament, and we read the resurrection accounts last week, Luke and Matthew, and so on, it does kind of get mind-boggling, because it's like, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary, and they just say that, too, the other Mary, you know, you know, the other Mary, um, Mary was a very common name, uh, in Israel, especially in the first century and even before that. As was Jesus, by the way. Um, Jesus is a Greekified version of Jesus' real name. Anybody know Jesus I mean Jesus is his real name. Don't I'm not getting into that. Jesus <laughs> Jesus is his real name. Anybody know his Hebrew or Aramaic, what it would sound like Huh? Not Jacob. Yeah, well Yeshua, which is, you know, we would just call Joshua joshua or yehoshua yeshua that is jesus the hebrew aramaic name uh, you greekify that into yesus and that's where we get jesus It's just fine you know, i don't think it's one of those things where you say you got to call him yeshua i'm just not just not into that but that is interesting to think about mary's name greekified is mary the hebrew version of that would be miriam Uh, Miriam being Moses' sister, uh, honored and revered figure in Jewish history. And so a lot of young girls were named Mary. And in the New Testament, we have at least six. And some are going to disagree and say, no, it's just five. Um, But I'm going to give you what most think are the six. Number one, most obviously, is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Okay? Uh, The virgin Mary, who was betrothed to Joseph, who gave birth to Jesus, raised him. Uh, and went on to have other children naturally with Joseph. Okay? Con- contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, she was not a perpetual virgin, uh, but went on to conceive naturally her other children, just like any other human birth or conception. Uh, Mary Magdalene, and the name Magdalene is one of those that is confusing. It- it's given to specify who she is from the other Marys, um, but it's not her last name. It is where she's from. She's from a region, a city called Magdala, which was in... I wrote this in my notes, and it just looks weird. It's in southwest Galilee. <laughs> it's in the southwest uh, corner of the region of Galilee, the city of Magdala. Uh, this, is, this is the Mary who appears in Luke 8, um, from whom Jesus removes seven demons. Okay, This is also the Mary we know who was the first real witness of the resurrected Lord in John 20. Now, where the other Marys come in and go, there's debate amongst scholars about was she one of the anointing Marys or was it Mary of Bethany only, um, but we know this is a separate Mary from Mary, mother of Jesus, and the other Marys, Mary from whom Jesus removed seven demons from Magdala, that region in Galilee, Mary Magdalene, we call her. Number three is Mary of Bethany. We often, nobody calls her that. We call Mary Magdalene that, but we don't often stop and say Mary of Bethany. But Mary of Bethany is the one we know as the sister of Lazarus and Martha from the city of Bethany, who lived in Bethany. This is the Mary who sat at Jesus' feet in Luke 10. Remember, he goes to their house for dinner, and uh, Martha is preparing dinner, but Mary is sitting at his feet listening to Jesus teach. And Martha's a little perturbed that Mary is, you know, sitting there while she's busy doing the, doing the chores. And Jesus says, you know, she's chosen the better portion. That is Mary of Bethany. And that's that constant state we see her in. We do know that this Mary of Bethany is at least one of the Marys who anointed Jesus, um, namely in Matthew 26 and probably John 12. Uh, this was Mary of Bethany that anointed Jesus when they anointed his his feet and his head, and we'll get to a question about the anointings uh, in a minute. That is another good question. Another Mary is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, Uh, not not the James and Joseph that you know, um, but another James, another Joseph, also common names, and she was the wife of Clopas, okay, so we see her, this other Mary, mother of James and Joseph, wife of Clopas, as a witness to the crucifixion, and she's also present there in Matthew 28, and she's named in Matthew 28 as one of the witnesses of the empty tomb. Okay, we, re- we read that account last week in the resurrection as well. So are you following so far? We've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary of Bethany, Mary, let's just simplify and say the wife of Clopas. There are other Marys that show up in the remaining parts of the New Testament that aren't in the Gospels. Uh, number one, another, another one is um, Mary, the mother of John Mark. And John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, who is with Paul, at least for some of his missionary journeys in the book of Acts. It says in Acts 12, this is the Mary who opened her home for believers to pray in. We might read that and think that was Mary, the mother of Jesus' house they were at, or some other Mary. Well, it was this Mary, the mother of John Mark who opened her house for the, for the believers to pray in, in Acts 12. Now here's where people disagree. There's a final Mary mentioned as a member of the church in Rome, and Paul mentions her by name in Romans 16. And there's disagreement on whether this is a separate Mary, or whether this is that Mary from Acts 12, uh, or whether this is in, in one of the other Marys that, that Paul happens to mention. And it is a little confusing because, as we said last week, when these authors decide they're going to name someone, um, it insinuates that the people that are reading the letter know who they are. Uh, they might know who the oh, Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Bethany, or Mary the wife of Clopas, or, or the Mary that opened her house to us in, in, in Acts. Um, uh, many scholars, though, believe because she's at, at the Roman church, she is a native of Rome, and and was never in Jerusalem where the disciples were in Acts 12. So they think this is a a separate Mary. So if you're counting, that's at least six different Marys that are mentioned by name in the New Testament. And that's the exhaustive list of the Marys of the New Testament. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary of Bethany, Mary, mother of James Joseph, wife of Clopas, Mary, the mother of John Mark, and Mary, this member of the church in Rome. That brings up this other question uh, someone sent in. In Matthew 26, uh, Jesus is anointed at Simon the leper's house. In John 12, Jesus is anointed at Lazarus' home. Was he anointed twice? Um, All four Gospels share at least one account of Jesus being anointed. In each case, it's with precious perfume. I think in every case, at least... uh, four of the primary ones, um, whoever is doing the anointing, because some are anonymous, wipes the, Jesus' feet with her hair and then also anoints his head, and some say just his feet. And this is one of those instances where we have accounts in the different Gospels that people have looked at and said, well, there's a contradiction uh, because this happened at a different time, and he names her, but he doesn't name her, and it says he anointed her; she anointed his feet, And then it says, you know, his feet and his head. And so some people would say there's there's contradiction there. It's not contradiction, there's differences. And the the act of anointing an honored guest with oil was very, very common. Just as much as they would have come into the house and a slave or a servant might have washed their feet, uh, an honored guest, the guest of honor for the evening or whatever it was for the dinner, would have been anointed probably with costly oil and, and perfume as a sign of honor and respect and an adoration. And so for Jesus to have been anointed, we believe, at least three separate times doesn't insinuate that there's a contradiction in the gospel writers' accounts. It just simply says that some of them are telling a different account of a completely different occurrence. Matthew and Mark talk about the same anointing, and they leave the woman anonymous. The woman is unnamed in Matthew and Mark's account. Uh, Matthew and Mark's account are two days before Passover. So if you you think about Thursday evening being Passover and Jesus gathering with his disciples then, Maundy Thursday, two days before that, Matthew and Mark talk about a woman at Simon the leper's house anointing Jesus. Luke talks about a different and earlier event. And he also leaves the woman anonymous. Scholars looking at Luke's account say his account was probably a year before Jesus died. So while that one event was two days before Passover, this event, a whole year earlier, and this to make it even more confusing, at another Simon's house, (laughs) but it's not Simon the leper, it's Simon who was a Pharisee. And this is the account that Luke tells of the woman, and, 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 and Jesus' point kind of in the end is not about worship and adoration and honor, though that's included, but it's about forgiveness. This woman has been forgiven much, so she loves much, and it's a lesson to this Pharisee and the people in his home. So that's a whole year before Jesus dies on the cross. The Gospel of John talks about yet another, maybe different event, He actually identifies the woman in his account as Mary of Bethany. And in his account, it is six days before Passover at their house in Bethany. Okay, so Matthew and Mark have one event two days before Passover, Simon the leper's house. Luke records a separate event one year before that at Simon the Pharisee's house, anonymous ladies. And then in John 12, Mary of Bethany at their house, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, in Bethany, six days before Passover, anoints Jesus' feet and then his head preparing for his burial. So it it wasn't uncommon, in fact, it was very common for guests of honor to be anointed, and it makes sense for the gospel writers to bring these accounts up, because after all, Jesus Christ, you know, Christ is not his last name, Christ means what? The the Messiah, good, but that also, the, the Messiah means what? Somebody said it. The anointed one, the, cho- the chosen anointed one of God. And so it makes sense that as this um, anointed one goes throughout his earthly ministry, there are going to be these accounts of him being anointed in these, in these various settings. So that's at least three separate a- accounts of anointing uh, Jesus that we have in the Gospels. Another question um, in Ezekiel God speaks to Ezekiel and calls him, quote, son of man. In the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as the son of man, capital S, capital M, and suggesting this is he is the Messiah, suggesting that that's a claim of him being the Messiah. And I, I, there wasn't really a question attached to this. I think it was just like a, what, what's the difference between that? Well, in the Bible... Uh, especially the Old Testament, to be called a son of man is just to be called a human, right? You be a son of man, um, that means you're a human being, and so oftentimes when addressing someone, uh, especially angels, they would address whoever they were talking to as a son of man. It is interesting that God uses to use that title so often with Ezekiel, um, and the title pops up in Daniel too, So why does Jesus latch on to such a kind of a generic term, man, (laughs) to refer to himself? Well, Jesus uses that specifically in reference to Daniel chapter 7. You remember the vision in Daniel 7? We talked about it here recently. that, That Daniel in the night vision sees the Ancient of Days seated on the throne. Remember this? And as he's observing the Ancient of Days, God, he sees one in the vision like... As unto a son of man. In other words, while he sees the Ancient of Days, God in all his glory and splendor, on the throne, he turns and he sees a man, a human. And this human comes to the throne of the Ancient of Days, God, and God gives him dominion and authority and lordship and judgment over everything. Now, obviously, we understand this is a prophecy of Christ. And we see Jesus latch on to that when he tells the Pharisees, remember, in his trial, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, Reference right to Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus liked to use that term about himself, not just to say, I'm a human being, though that's what it could mean, but to identify himself as the Son of Man from those Old Testament prophecies. So for God or an angel to address Ezekiel or any other man as a son of man makes sense because he's saying, you're human, I'm God, or I'm an angel, you're human. But when Jesus uses that title, he's referring to a specific prophecy that calls the Messiah the Son of Man. And of course, Jesus is not just the Son of Man, he's also the Son of God, okay? And when we sing fairest Lord Jesus, that hymn, we we proclaim that Son of God and Son of Man, Truly God, truly man. Not just seeming like a man, but he was truly man. So in that sense, Jesus was a son of man, just as you and I are. But in his Messiah identity, he was the son of man of the Old Testament prophecies. The last two are fun, and uh, I want to <laughs> I want to kind of leave this open for some discussion if you want to. Um, a question that came pretty early on because about a couple months ago when I started advertising this, um, this was going on. The question is, what do you think about the Asbury revival? First of all, does everybody know what we're referring to with the Asbury revival? Does anybody just not know? Mason does not know. He's shaking his head real big. All right. Um, There's a school in Kentucky. I think it's near Lexington. Uh, It's traditionally... Holiness, Wesleyan, Methodist, conservative, not liberal, Methodist school. Uh, seminary, college, Asbury University, Asbury Seminary. And they have a big chapel there. And I think back in January or February, I don't remember when it was, January. Um, we, we, you know, you began to see these things on YouTube and on the news uh, about a, a supposed revival going on at Asbury. And, and there was lots of YouTube and news videos, and, and most, of all, most of what you saw in those videos um, was times of singing, uh, music and, and worship, and in very holiness, old-timey Wesleyan tradition. They're a little bit more exuberant in their praise and worship than Baptists tend to be, okay? And so there's a lot of hand-raising uh, and, and jumping and shouting and singing very passionately, which, you know, we could learn from, by the way, um, but, but, but the, the, you see this, and so that wasn't necessarily the case, you know, I think maybe here, if people, you know, just randomly started raising their hands, and jumping, and shouting, we would think something weird was going on, but the, they, they did that, it wasn't just for one service, it kind of just kept on going, and going, and going, and then it began to attract a crowd, and a bigger crowd, and, and soon they were, you know, people were traveling from all over to, uh, to Asbury Chapel, because this chapel service that started, I think, one Tuesday morning had just not stopped. And so they were going all day, all night, all day, and they were just kind of rotating singers and rotating preachers and rotating people leading prayer and reading scripture, and it kind of flowed outside, and they had overflow sanctuaries, and people were worshiping on the grounds and on the lawn. And and, um, the immediate response that I had was generally positive, that this is, um, from what I was seeing at least, and, and I follow people that, that teach and are professors at the seminary I went to in Louisville, Kentucky, very conservative, evangelical, um, in the more reformed tradition, they're not going to be into charismatic kind of stuff, and some of them had gone to the revival sort of just to see what was going on and kind of discern and sense it, and they were giving positive reports uh, that things were in order. It was passionate and loud, but it was not, um, you know, crazy. Uh, There wasn't an uh, an abuse of any spiritual gifts or any kind of crazy stuff going on. You know, from what they heard, the doctrine was sound. The prayers were sound. There was scripture reading. There was teaching and preaching. There was evangelism. People were being saved, and and to that end, I was, I was very hopeful and, and happy and, and positive about it. I think if there's anything negative I would say about it, and I'm not writing any of it off as fake or not real, but here's what we tend to do, specifically evangelical Christians, we, we tend to do this, that if there's something happening over there you know asbury let's say they were having a real awakening and the, the holy spirit was 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 raining down and people were being changed and reinvigorated in their spiritual life we tend to start thinking like superstitionists and and, and in a way sort of in a roman catholic mindset that this thing is happening at that location and so that location is where the fire is and so you began to hear reports of people traveling literally around the world, across the country, driving hours and hours to bring their church vans and their groups and stuff to Asbury Chapel because that's where the fire was, and we want to catch the fire and take it back to our church. Admirable sentiments and good motives, but just not what I would say very biblical. And, you know, the, in the Reformation times, um, Martin Luther and the Reformers dealt with this kind of stuff a lot because they were dealing with people who came out of Roman Catholicism, right? They were, they were dealing with, the, in their Protestant Reformed churches, people who had grown up in the Roman Catholic system. And in the Roman Catholic system, you know, you could visit, literally, maybe, <laughs> the, the, the skull of John the Baptist, that was at this cathedral out somewhere. And and the church had control of all these relics like John the Baptist's skull or nails from the cross or a piece of wood from the cross or a bone from this saint or a bone from that saint or Joseph's pants or whatever it was. And, and, And people would travel all over to go see these relics and these holy sites hoping to get time off of purgatory, And, of course, if you wanted to go in and see the skull of John the Baptist, you had to pay a a pretty penny to the church, and you would get so many years off of purgatory. Now, it's not the same thing. And nobody at Asbury was claiming that. But Christians sometimes start to think like that. Uh, I'm sure that you've all heard of famous so-called revivals throughout the years, whether it's the the Toronto Revival or the Brownsville Revival or the Kansas City Revival. Those are all very problematic, by the way, very kind of... Not orthodox charismatic stuff. This one is not that. But in all those cases, you had people going from all over to try and go get something. You understand what I'm saying? And take it back to their church. I got to go have this experience and take it back and hope my church gets this experience. The Bible is pretty clear, and I, and I think Luther was right to say you don't need to travel to this place or that place or that cathedral or that relic or if we could say it in our, our terms we don't need to go to Asbury or anywhere else where God might be really doing something interesting you don't have to go there to get that thing like it's some sort of sickness and, <laughs> and bring it back to Dumas or wherever your church is Luther was right to say look here we are we have the Bible we have the sacraments we have the preaching of God's word. We have the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. We have the gathering of Christ's body. We have prayer. We have each other. This is what God is using. If he so decides to pour out his spirit in a special way on Asbury and those students for a special thing, so be it. Praise God. And, you know, and I think it's not unhealthy to say, we'll see. You know, I think it was right to say, this looks good we'll see what the fruit of it is. I pray for good fruit from it. But I don't need to pack up Pastor Matt and Pastor Zane and fly to Lexington, Kentucky to go experience something and hope to bring it back here that we don't already have. We have the preaching of the word, the ordinances, we have the kingdom of God, the prayers, the saints. We have what we need. And so it's always, remember, I like my ditches. You could go off the ditch in one side and say false revival and, and God doesn't do that and, and all you see is emotionalism and stuff and there might be some of that emotionalism wrapped up in there and on the other hand though you would say man this is all God and it's all great and we've got to go get it now there is a good way of seeing it to where you can say if God is doing something over there that's great we'll, pay, we'll, we'll pray for fruit but God is also working here and it might not be as sensational or uh, charismatic oriented, but God is working through his word, God is working through his people, and he's promised to do that. We don't, we don't need the sensational stuff um, to see that God is working, all right? Does that make sense? Does that uh, kind of clarify the Asbury thing? So, I'm not a skeptic. I don't tend to be I don't tend to be, <laughs> that might be false, I don't tend to be cynical about things. Um, I think I I think I try to look at things objectively and, and try to understand stuff, so that's kind of my take on that. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. So reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.